Sin is never static. Don't allow it to fester or it will grow until it consumes your life. Welcome to the Mana Bible Lessons Podcast. Mana is a Bible study life group that meets at Valley Baptist Church in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. However, if you're listening from another part of the world, then we welcome you and we invite you to stay tuned after the lesson to hear how you can submit your prayer request to be on our prayer sheet. Thank you for joining us. And now here's Brad Hannock. Fellow students, if you would open your Bibles to Genesis 37, Genesis 37, we're going to continue our study in the life of Jacob, and we're going to make a transition today, uh, moving more toward Joseph. In the early desperate stages of World War II, Winston Churchill made an unforgettable speech to Parliament where he rallied Great Britain to face the enemy and fight, and he said in part, We shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields, we shall fight in the streets, we shall fight in the hills. Sounds like your typical family vacation. (laughs) That's a laughter of identification. You all have been there, right? Today we're going to look at one of the most dysfunctional families in the Bible, whom God amazingly uses to accomplish his plans, despite their foolishness and sinfulness and selfishness and hatred and jealousy and you could go on and on. There are many lessons to learn, so let's dive in. The first 11 chapters of Genesis really record the creation of the universe and the early history of humanity on earth. Beginning in chapter 12 of Genesis, the entire narrative of the book changes and it recounts the biographies of four major people in one single family tree. Most of Genesis, from Genesis 12 to Genesis 50, is the biography of four people. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. God works through these four personalities to bring about his purpose to redeem the world through a coming Messiah. Jesus Christ, of course, the coming Messiah, would be born of the family of Abraham, the descendants of Abraham, ultimately called the nation of Israel. And today we're going to begin our study of Joseph. Joseph is the 11th son of Jacob's 12 sons. Joseph was born when Jacob was 91. So there's hope for all of you, right? Joseph is now about 17, so if you do the math, Jacob's about 108. And it's real easy to conclude when you get into Genesis 37 that Jacob's life is over, and from now on the book is all about Joseph. The reality is Jacob doesn't die until Genesis 49 at 147 years old. God revealed himself directly, face-to-face, and spoke to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God never spoke to Joseph face to face, but the hand of God, the providence of God, the workings of God over Jacob's life and Joseph's life especially are seen everywhere. It's been said that where God seems absent, he is the most present. And that is so true in the life of Joseph. And by the way, for those of you that are interested, the the book of Esther never once recounts God's name. And yet his hand over her life and over the nation of Israel in that book is everywhere. And this is exactly true of Joseph's life. So this particular chapter, chapter 37, has three main characters. Jacob, Joseph, and Joseph's ten brothers. There's not a lot about Benjamin here. Benjamin's the youngest in the family. Benjamin's probably about two years old at the time of this narrative. So clearly he's not part of the action at that point in time. Let's pick up the narrative in chapter 37, verse 1. Now Jacob lived in the land where his father had sojourned in the land of Canaan. These are the records of the generations of Jacob. Joseph, when 17 years of age, was pasturing the flock with his brothers while he was still a youth, along with the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought back a bad report about them to his father. Rob's going to show you a map of kind of this area Jacob has just moved back to Hebron to live near 
his father Isaac. Now, I want you to put this kind of a timeline. Jacob left home to go to Haran when he was 77 years old. He stole his brother Esau's blessing. Brother Esau says, you're going to die. They're both 77. Jacob says, I think I need to go north. And Isaac and, and uh, his mother Rebekah say, you need to go to Haran and find a wife of Rebekah's family. So he goes f about 500 miles northwest or northeast rather to Haran. He stayed there 20 years. He marries two sisters, Leah and Rachel, in year seven. He works for seven years, as you recall, to pay the dowry price for the wife he wanted to marry, which was Rachel. But Laban, being clever, substituted Leah, so he wakes up the first night after the honeymoon, and it's Leah in bed with him, not Rachel. Now, that would be just a bit of a surprise. He confronts Laban. Laban says, well, we always marry off the older daughter before the younger daughter, but if you work another seven years for me, you can marry Rachel as well. So seven days later, he marries Rachel and works another seven years. So 14 years for the dowry price for two sisters, which he marries eight days apart. That would not be a good strategy for marital happiness, just in case you're wondering. Beginning in year seven to year 14, a seven-year span, as near as we can tell, 11 children are born to Jacob by four women. Leah, Rachel, Bilhah, and Zilpah. So a lot of these pregnancies are overlapping, as near as we can tell from the record. Some of these women are pregnant many, more than one at the same time, and some of these children are probably born only months apart. Leah bears six sons, Bilhah two, Zilpah two, and in year 14, Rachel gives birth to Joseph, finally. From years, 14 to, from years 14 to 20, Jacob is building his herd up and serving Laban. And in year 20, God says, Jacob, it's time to go back to Canaan. Now he's now 97. 77 plus 20 in Haran, he's now 97 years old. So Jacob goes back on the way he meets his brother Esau. He wrestles with God at Penuel, which you can see on the map on the east side of the river. The book Jabbok is right there. And then he moves west to the cities of Succoth and the city of Shechem. Now, God had told him to go all the way south to Bethel and build an altar. Jacob kind of uh, disobeys for 10 years or so. Some of us in this room have disobeyed God sometimes for years as well. So he finally, after 10 years in Shechem, his daughter Dinah is raped by Shechem, which is the prince. Two of his sons, Levi and Simeon, go on a rampage, kill all the males in Shechem, loot the entire town, and God says, Jacob, I told you, get your body down to Bethel, build an altar. Jacob goes back to Bethel, builds an altar, and then moves down to Hebron, where he's now living with his father in the same area. Jacob's father, Isaac, lives for another 12 years after this chapter. So Grandpa Isaac knows and thinks that his son Joseph has been killed. Just so you know, just kind of putting that in context. So as this chapter opens, it seems pretty clear that Jacob's older sons, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, they're mature men, they're in their early 20s, and they're probably pasturing the flock of Jacob further away from home because it says that Joseph is pasturing the flock with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, as you recall... Bilhah was Rachel's maid, and she bore Jacob, Dan, and Naphtali. And Zilpah was Leah's maid, became concubines of Jacob, and they, she bore Jacob, Gad, and Asher. So there's four sons plus Joseph, their half-brother, and all of them are probably learning animal husbandry while living closer to home, and Jacob is kind of supervising them at that point. When you read this, it seems pretty clear that Joseph has unusual leadership abilities, and Jacob has put him in charge. And he's 17 years old, and he's in charge of his older siblings. How would that work in your family of origin? Maybe I should ask, how did that work in your family of origin, if, if your parents tried that? Generally, the older ones have the authority and the responsibility. In this case, Joseph is 17, and his leadership ability is such that Jacob put him in charge of his four half-brothers. The word here, 
pasturing the flock with his brothers literally translate that Joseph was acting the shepherd over his brothers in the flock. So it literally indicates that he's put in charge of the flocks and he's put in charge of them. He was assigned by his father to oversee the operations and then come back and give dad a status report. Here's what's going on and here's what's not going on. And it says he came back and he brought back a bad report about his brothers. And of course, the first thing you go is, well, he's just a tattletale. I mean, he's a 17-year-old kid, right? But it doesn't say that he's a tattletale. And what we know about Joseph's moral character, it seems likely that what he reported to his father was true. Now, we have no idea what they were doing that was wrong or evil. But when you read the prior chapters and realize that these four sons, Gad, Asher, Dan, Naphtali, were part of the crew that butchered the people in Shechem and looted the joint, you kind of go, well, they're, pretty, they're capable of doing pretty evil stuff. I mean, it's pretty clear that these were not necessarily nice people, right? These four brothers hated to be accountable, and they also hated Joseph for holding them accountable. So if you go to verse 3, it says, Now Israel, Israel is God's name for Jacob. Israel loved Joseph more than all his sons. Now you can underline that. That is a recipe for how to destroy a family. Just saying, right there. Because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a very colored tunic. His brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, and so they hated him and could not speak to him on friendly terms. Here's the principle. God's love accepts and unifies us. Personal favoritism compares and divides us. God loves without partiality, and so should we. God's love accepts and unifies us. Personal favoritism compares and divides us. God loves without partiality, and so should we. Throughout Jacob's family, you're going to see all the relationships are strained and stained by the sin of favoritism. And this sin of favoritism ran throughout the family from the beginning. Abraham favored Isaac more than Ishmael. Isaac loved Esau more than Jacob. Rebekah loved Jacob more than Esau. Jacob loves Rachel more than Leah. Jacob loves Joseph more than all the 11 sons. So this favoritism business is epidemic in this family. And the truth is, Jacob probably spent more time with Joseph than any of his other sons. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out why. Who is his favorite wife? Rachel. Rachel was Joseph's mother. Where do you think Jacob slept most nights? In Rachel's tent. Duh. So he had a lot more time with Joseph than he did with his other sons. It didn't help that Joseph was a good kid. Joseph probably obeyed the rules. Joseph probably behaved much better than his older brothers. His older brothers had looted and stolen and committed sexual immorality and all this other stuff. They were hard people, and sometimes it's hard to love hard people. It's always easier to love nice people than nasty people. Have you noticed? I mean, the nice ones are easy to love. The nasty ones, let Jesus sort them out, right? It would have been real easy for Jacob to be lenient with Joseph. Kind of like you are with your grandchildren. Say yes, even when you probably shouldn't because you go, I'm sending them home. And mom and dad can sort it out. We're the grandparents. Our job is to spoil them and sugar them and send them home, right? That's what we do, right? However, Jesus gave us a commandment that is easy to read and very difficult to implement. John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just like they love you. Is that what it says? It says that you love one another even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. So the standard of love that we have for each other is the love that Jesus had for us. And that is unconditional 
and impartial. Because the truth of it is, none of us are lovely. It's easy to love the lovely. It's easy to be nice to the nice. We are not nice and we are not lovely. We are sinners and selfish. And Jesus loved us unconditionally and without impartiality. And Jesus doesn't play favorites. And therefore, God's people are called to act like God acts. Love is the defining character trait that reveals the reality that you are a follower of Jesus. If there is no love in our heart, then we should look in the mirror and wonder, are we really a follower of Jesus? Because that is the commandment. Jacob wasn't loving his sons based on who they were, but based on who your mama was. Serious. If your mother was Rachel, you had the inside track. Jake, Joseph, and Benjamin were Rachel's sons, and Jacob favored both of them. If your mother was Leah or Zilpah or Bilhah, you weren't even in the track. You weren't even in the race. You didn't even count. So this is clear partiality at that point. And this sin of favoritism fractured his family. It created resentment. It created jealousy. It created hatred that literally almost destroyed them. However, the grace of God is never limited by the sin of man. The grace of God is never limited by the sin of man. And over the next few chapters, we're going to see God working over and over and over again to accomplish his purposes despite human failure. Now the text says that Joseph was the son of his old age. And we typically mean, well, he was born when Jacob was really, really old, 91. Well, it doesn't really mean that. It doesn't mean that he was his youngest son because Benjamin was 15 years younger than Joseph. So Jacob, Joseph is 17, Benjamin is about two at that point. Son of his old age probably means son of wisdom. Joseph was old for his age. He had wisdom of old age, even though he was a youth. And even as a young person, God was clearly preparing Joseph for his life's work. We're going to see that as this chapter comes in. And the application for us is pretty simple. God equips people with the gifts and the skills and the aptitudes that they need to accomplish his purposes for their life. So one of the ways you look and say, I wonder what God wants me to do with my life. Look at how he's equipped you. Look at the skills he's given you. Look at the aptitudes he's given you. And look at the interests he's given you. And that's a good guide for what you ought to be doing with your time and your ministry. And the same thing is true of your children and grandchildren, nieces and nephews. Pay attention to how they're hardwired. Because God gives us aptitudes, gifts, and talents as an indicator of what he wants to be doing in completing our life purpose. Now, not only did Jacob guilty of the sin of favoritism, he flaunted his favoritism. He flaunted his favoritism to Joseph. He gave him a very visible gift that no other son received, which is what's called a very colored tunic. Now, your, your, your Bible text may say a coat of many colors, right? I know I should turn around and look, but I'm not going to. I knew it. I knew it. I knew it. <clears throat> We're accustomed to think of this coat as looking like a rainbow-colored garment, right? Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice actually wrote a stage musical called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. And... Uh, the Hebrew word, very colored uh, tunic, simply means a long-sleeved tunic or robe that came to the wrists and came to the ankles. And it was probably made out of uh, linen. It might have been very colored. It might have just had strips of color around the borders, the wrists and, and the ankles at that point. It might have been ornamented with colored beads. But it's very clear that this robe was not designed for the working class. This robe was designed for the ruling class, right? Whoever ruled this robe was not going to be doing any manual labor. Joseph's brothers were incredibly envious of this robe because it signified something that the text doesn't implicitly tell us. It signified that Joseph had been designated by Jacob to receive the birthright. It designated that Joseph then was going to receive a double portion of the family's inheritance and he was going to receive the authority over the family when Jacob died. That 
really stuck in the craw of the rest of the brothers because ordinarily the oldest son would receive the birthright. Who's the oldest son? Reuben. Reuben's forfeited the birthright because within the last year or two, he slept with Jacob's concubine, Bilhah, which would tend to erode the relationship between Reuben and Jacob. Jacob was treating Joseph as his firstborn son. And we're pretty sure this is how Jacob was thinking. I didn't choose Leah to be my first wife. I chose Rachel to be my first wife. I got conned into marrying Leah by daddy-in-law Reuben who lied to me. And because Rachel was my chosen first wife and Joseph is her oldest son, therefore Joseph is my firstborn son and I'm going to give him the birthright and the inheritance and the authority over the rest of the brothers. Verse 5. Then Joseph had a dream. And when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Please listen to this dream which I have had. For behold, we were binding sheaves in the field. And lo, my sheaf rose up and also stood erect. And behold, your sheaves gathered around and bowed down to my sheaf. I can hear the cursing in verse 8. Then his brother said to him, Are you actually going to reign over us? Or are you really going to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams than for his words. Gets better. Verse 9. Now he had still another dream. And he related to his brothers and said, Lo, I have had still another dream. And behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. He related it to his father and to his brothers, and his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have had? Shall I and your mother and your brothers actually come to bow ourselves down before you to the ground? Verse 11, His brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Here's the principle. Do not covet what God has given to another, and do not be arrogant over what God has given to you. Honor Jesus in everything. Do not covet what God has given to another. And do not be arrogant over what God has given to you. Honor Jesus in everything. God is here confirming his future plans for Joseph by revealing what his future is going to look like through these dreams. Now, most of the time, God speaks to people through his word and his spirit in conjunction with providential circumstances. There's an old saying, the will of God is found in the Word of God. If you want to know what the will of God is, He wrote it down. It's in your lap. It's on your electronic device. You simply read it in the Bible. However, there are situations where God's Word's not available, and we have reliable records around the world where God's Word is banned in countries, Middle Eastern, for example, and God often speaks to people through dreams and literally reveals himself and tells them what they're going to do next because the Word of God's not available. Most of the time, though, for us in, where the Word of God is available, you want reliable guidance, you've got it. Pray for insight, open God's Word, and do what He says. So these two dreams have a common theme because they always elevate Joseph above the rest of his family. And in both dreams, Joseph's family is seen bowing down to him. Joseph is portrayed here as morally upright, but he's also an adolescent who's pretty full of himself. He's 17 years old at this time, and he shared these dreams with his brothers who already hated him, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense. And just FYI, here's a freebie. Just because it's true doesn't mean you have to say it. Word to the wise. Just because it's true doesn't mean you have to say it, right? Most of the times, silence is golden. Proverbs says, even a fool is thought to be wise as long as they shut their lips. And then, of course, they open their mouth and remove all doubt. Joseph is being naive at best and, and probably spiritually prideful at worst. If he hasn't figured out yet that his brothers hate him, he's naive, right? Because it says they can't even talk to him. If he, if he does know they hate him and he tells them anyway, then it seems clear that 
he's rubbing their face in his superior position, which is enormous spiritual pride. So Joseph is wise beyond his years, but he's still a teenager. And he doesn't have the perspective to understand the full meaning of those dreams. So what Joseph probably should have done is gone to his father Jacob privately and said, I had these dreams, I don't know what they mean. It's pretty clear that they, uh, they're supposed to mean something. What do you think? Get some counsel here. The problem was, Jacob has already elevated Joseph above his brothers. He's given him leadership responsibilities over his brothers. He's designated them as the heir apparent by giving him the coat of royalty that clearly says, you're not going to work, you're going to rule. Now it seems that God himself is speaking to Joseph about his future leadership position in the family. What's interesting is you would think that his brothers would just blow this off and say, this is a 17-year-old teenager. It's fantasy. He's got delusions of grandeur. Uh, he's just a kid. You know, go, go tend some sheep. They take his dreams very seriously. There is an indication that the family believes that God is talking to Joseph, and they don't like it. They're opposed to Joseph regardless of what God's plans are or regardless of what dad's plans are, his brothers are opposed to him. And they're jealous because they fear the loss of something. By the way, there's a difference between jealousy and envy. Envy means you've got it and I want it. That's a two-party affair. You've got it, I want it. Jealousy is always a three-party affair. I've got something. I'm afraid you're going to take it away from me and give it to somebody else. That's why all, when they say jealousy and love, there's always three people. Envy is simply, you've got it, I want, two-party. This is jealousy. The brothers believe that the leadership role and the inheritance that will come from Jacob belongs to them. Because they're the oldest. And Jacob is saying, no, I'm giving it to, to Joseph. And they're jealous because they're afraid they're going to lose that inheritance and you can be sure that they told Joseph, there is no way in God's green earth or anywhere else that's high or low that you will ever rule over us and we will never, ever, ever bow down before you, even if God did show you it in a dream. Right. Subsequent chapters are going to reveal that God is, in fact, providentially preparing Joseph for his next role. Now, verses 17 to 12 to 17 really set the stage for how God gets Joseph into Egypt. Rob's going to show you a map of a number of cities here. Joseph's brothers have traveled some 50 miles north of Hebron to Shechem, and they're, 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 they're pasturing the flocks up there. Remember that 10 years before, Jacob had bought some land up there from the Shechemites, and so he owns some land up there. And so this is the city that within the last year or two that Simeon and Levi had massacred all the males and all 11 brothers or all 10 brothers had gone in and captured the women and the children and the flocks and the herds and taken all the stuff and absconded with it. So there's some really bad blood up there. So you kind of say, what would they be doing near Shechem after they just butchered the whole town within the last couple of years? You would think that would be a, a place you would want to stay away from given that. But apparently, all of Jacob's sons, except Joseph and Benjamin, are up there pasturing the flock. And it had been some time since Jacob had heard from them. Fifty miles when you got to walk takes a few days. So he says, Joseph, can you go up north to Shechem from Hebron and check on your brothers and see if they're all right? And Joseph says, sure, I'll go. What's amazing is in the prior verses, it says that Joseph's brothers couldn't even speak to him civilly. And it appears that neither Jacob or Joseph has a clue that these brothers hate his guts. Because Jacob sends his youngest son to check on ten brothers who hate him. you got to believe that he wouldn't put his favorite son in harm's way if he'd figured it out. But apparently there's a lack of discernment here somewhere. And of course, they, they, Jacob, Joseph goes up there to, to Shechem and finds out that the brothers have gone 20 miles north to Dothan. So now he's about 70 miles away from home in northern Israel. And Dothan had really good pasture and, and water, good water supplies for the flocks and herds. The, by the way, the name Dothan means two cisterns. Two cisterns, which were big storage containers for water there. So 
Joseph is coming up to visit Dothan, and the narrative says in verse 18, when they saw him from a distance, and before he came close to him, they plotted against him to put him to death. And they said, here comes this dreamer. Now then, come and let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits, and we will say a wild beast devoured him. Then let us see what becomes of his dreams. But Reuben heard it and rescued him out of their hands and says, let us not take his life. Reuben further said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit or cistern that is in the wilderness, but do not lay hands on him that he might rescue him out of their hands to restore him to his father. Here's the principle. Sin is never static. Don't let sin fester or it will grow until it consumes your entire life. Sin is never static. Don't allow it to fester or it will grow until it consumes your life. Sin is like cancer. The natural tendency of cancer is to metastasize, to spread, to take over the entire organism. That's what sin does to our spiritual life. Now, his brothers could see Joseph from a great distance away. You know why they could see him from a great distance away? Because he's got his rainbow uniform on, right? I mean, you can see this thing miles away. He is strutting his stuff. You would think, don't rub their faces in it. Well, this is kind of rubbing your face in it. And it fanned the embers of hatred into a conspiracy to murder. So they planned on killing their half-brother in order to make sure his dreams would never come true. They must have believed that those dreams had come from God. Or they didn't take him that seriously. And so their plot to murder him was to say, we are going to thwart God's plan for this punk kid of ours. Punk brother, this teenager, right? Reuben is the oldest. And he's the one Jacob's going to hold responsible for the welfare of Joseph. That's part of being an oldest child is you get the responsibility for the welfare of the family. Whatever happened to Joseph, Reuben's Fanny's on the line and he knows it. And he's already in trouble with Jacob because he slept with his concubine. So Reuben's on skating on really thin ice. So Reuben says, don't kill him. Don't kill him. Don't murder him with your own hands. Here's what you do. You throw him into a deep, empty cistern and let Mother Nature take care of business. You walk away for three days, he'll be dead of thirst because you can't get out of these cisterns. Rob's going to show you a picture. <laughs> These cisterns had really, really, really vertical walls. Really vertical walls. Now show them the one I gave you. So the, Reuben's point was, don't kill him with your own hands. He'll still be dead, but Mother Nature will take care of business. Now, by the way, this wasn't a new idea. They used dry cisterns in this area as prison cells all the time because they had very steep vertical walls. They were literally well shafts, right? And they used them for storage, water storage, etc. And so they used them as prison cells, or, or banditos would hide in them with ropes and then come out and attack people and escape. So the walls were vertical. Escape's pretty, pretty impossible. And Reuben's planning on circling back later and sending them back home to Jacob. And I'm sure that Reuben is hoping that brother Joseph will tell father Jacob that brother Reuben was the one who saved him. And that way Reuben could maybe get into dad's good graces for having sinned against his father by sleeping with his wife. I know, it gets pretty sordid. That's human nature. Human nature doesn't change. You look at today and you read the headlines and you go, oh my goodness, it was better in the good old days. It was not better in the good old days. I talk to people all the time. They say, I'm going to leave California. This place is just so blah, blah, blah. And I said, look, stupid is everywhere because sin is everywhere. It doesn't matter where you go. Human nature is human nature. People are no closer to Jesus than any the other state or any other part of the world. We all need saving. Verse 23. Where you, want to, where you want to go, the geography you long for is heaven. It's not some other place on planet Earth. There is no paradise on planet Earth. It's heaven that our souls long for. Verse 23. 
So it came about when Joseph reached his brothers that they stripped Joseph of his tunic, the very colored tunic that was on him, and they took him and threw him into the pit. Now the pit was empty without any water in it. They then sat down to eat a meal. And they raised their eyes and looked, and behold, a caravan of Ishmaelites was coming from Gilead with their camels bearing aromatic gum and balm and myrrh on their way to bring them down to Egypt. Joseph said to his brothers, What profit is it for us to kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come and let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then some Midianite traders passed by, so they pulled him up, lifted Joseph out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 pieces of silver. Thus they brought Joseph into Egypt. And you read this, and it is very matter of fact. But the emotional content behind this is tragic beyond words. Here's the principle. God often accomplishes his plans for our lives in ways we don't understand at the time. The solution is to trust him. God often accomplishes his plan. I was going to say most often, because I think sometimes it is. Most often God accomplishes his plans for our lives in ways we don't understand at the time, so trust him. This behavior on the part of the brothers is callous. I mean, that's cold, really cold. They strip off his favorite tunic. They throw him in a deep-sided cistern. I don't know how deep it is, deep enough he can't get out. And if there had been water in it, Joseph would have drowned. It was dry. The fact that it's dry leads me to an interesting conjecture. And I didn't read this anywhere. This came up out of my little brain here. The fact that it's dry in a country that normally gets rain tells us they might have been living in a drought at that point, just like California. If there was, you wonder, why would they go all the way to Shechem to pasture fly? 50, 60, 70 miles. You're telling me there's no pasture in Hebron? Well, if there was a drought in Israel, the northern part of Israel where Shechem and Dothan is gets four, five, six times as much rain as Hebron. Hebron's already dry. So if there is a drought in the north and the cisterns are dry, down south, there may not be any grass at all. That might have been what motivated them to move 50, 60, 70 miles north with the flocks and herds in the first place in order to get that because northern Israel has a lot more rain than southern Israel. When the brothers are, are plotting to do this to Joseph, apparently Reuben is not present. I don't know whether he's back checking on the flocks, but apparently he's not on site at that point. So you have nine brothers, take his coat off, throw him in the well, sit down by the pit, and have lunch. And we know later on, the text tells us that Joseph was pleading with them from the cistern not to do this great evil. Because when the brothers get in front of him when he's prime minister of Egypt, they said, remember how he was weeping and crying out to us and asking us not to do this. And we said, go pound sand or something like that. So you got nine brothers that are really hard and they really hate him and they really want him dead. It's interesting. The next time these brothers share a meal with Joseph, he's the prime minister. And they're sitting at a table, and he's sitting at the high table in the room. And they do bow down with their faces to the dirt, which they swore before God they would never do. Little clue. Don't ever tell God you will never do something. <laughs> like you don't pray for patience. Don't ever tell God what you will do or what you won't do. Because when you stick your head up and rebel against him, it says God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. These brothers are arrogant and they're opposed to God's plan for Joseph and they're opposed to dad's plan for Joseph because they're going to have their will be done and to oppose God is folly. To say the least, you can't win that battle because he will outlive you. So Dothan, if the map's still up there, it's situated on a caravan route. I don't think you can see that from the map we gave you, but it runs all the way from Damascus all the way down to Egypt. It's a trade route right through the middle of Israel. Ishmael, Ishmael by the way, and Midian, they talk about the Ishmaelites and the Midianites. Those were both sons of Abraham. Ishmael was the son of, of Hagar and Abraham, 
And Midian was one of six sons of Abraham with his, his second wife after Sarah, Keturah. Abraham married Keturah after Sarah died, and Midian was one of those sons. So these children, these um, Ishmaelites and Midianites, were sons of Abraham's. They were really tent-dwelling Bedouins. They were nomads. They lived in the desert areas of the Sinai and Arabian Peninsula. And many of them were shepherds, but some of them were also nomadic caravan merchants. They had camel trains, and they literally were the trucking firms of that era. Anytime you see camels in ancient times, that was the Peterbilt diesels of the era. They hauled goods back and forth. So when you had a camel train, think of uh, semi-trucking uh, diesel trucks. That's what the camels were. So they were hauling goods down to Egypt, aromatic spices and myrrh, which was a very expensive uh, item. And uh, so they were on the way, and these brothers saw this caravan coming. And Judah is a bit of a merchant here. He's got a little desire for gain. He says, why would we want to kill them? There's no money in killing them. We don't get anything, right? Why don't we just sell them? Make a few bucks. We get rid of them, right? His dreams won't come true, and we make some dollars. And the brothers say, whoa, okay, not bad. So they, there's an active slave trade in Egypt, by the way. And so they sell Joseph for 20 pieces of silver. That's about eight ounces. That's what a young slave went for at that time. A mature man was valued at... 30 pieces of silver. Where have you heard 30 pieces of silver before? Exactly what Judas sold Jesus for 2,000 years later. Just to give you some context, if you were a shepherd in that era, a shepherd, and you did not own your own flock, you were working for somebody else. So you were an employed shepherd, hired shepherd. You earned about eight shekels a year for your labor. So they sold a young slave for two and a half years worth of labor at that point. I want you to picture the suddenness of this. In a matter of hours, Joseph goes from being the favorite son, the heir, the one with the birthright, with a royal cloak who's been given the rule, who's going to go check on the brothers and go back to dad. In a matter of hours, he goes from being the son of a very wealthy influential man to being shackled and changed and dragged off to Egypt the same day, probably in a matter of hours. You talk about shock. You're 17, and you go from being large and in charge to being in shackles and headed for Egypt. Wow. So his own brothers become slave traders. Don't let sin fester. It grows. I mean, we look at this and say, okay, they're jealous. Okay, they hate them. They, that hatred grew into a desire to murder. So you look and you say, boy, it's a good thing that caravan came by. Wonder why the caravan just showed up. Just kind of when it did. I mean, I actually believe that God engineers everything. I could see the Holy Spirit whispering in Judah's ear. Why don't you just sell him? God's plan is what? Get Joseph into Egypt. That's the divine plan. He's got to get to Egypt. And you go, well, yeah, but as a slave? That wasn't God's plan. That was the brother's sin. Even worse, even more amazing. This group of caravan traders are relatives. They're sons of Abraham. Well, so is Isaac and so is Jacob. These are cousins. I'm sure Joseph didn't want to leave home. I'm sure he didn't want to go to Egypt. And I'm sure he didn't want to go in shackles. This doesn't seem like a path of promise. Sure not the path to family leadership. It seems like a path to an early grave and a path away from the family. I mean, he is pulled out of the family by the roots and schlepped off to a foreign land. Now, the brothers have a problem. How do they explain to their father what has happened to his favorite son? So they decide to deceive their dad. Is deception part of this family? They're really good liars, all of them, right? they got to deceive their dad into believing that Joseph is dead. Verse 31. 
So they took Joseph's tunic and slaughtered a male goat and dipped the tunic in the blood. And they sent, I don't know if this means they didn't have the guts to go face dad, but it says they sent the very colored tunic and brought it to their father and said, we found this, please examine it to see whether it is your son's tunic or not. Then Jacob examined it and said, it is my son's tunic, a wild beast has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. So Jacob tore his clothes and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his sons many days. And if you keep reading, here's what's even worse. Verse 35, Then all his sons and all his daughters arose to comfort him, but he refused to comfort him. And he said, Surely I will go down to Sheol in mourning for my sons. So his father wept for him. Can you imagine how callous it is for you as a son who knows what you did to Joseph to try and comfort your dad? Dad, be comforted, be comforted. My son's dead. What do you mean be comforted? They knew he wasn't dead. Here's the principle. The consequences of lying can last a lifetime. So make it a habit to tell the truth every time. The consequences of lying can last a lifetime. So make it a habit to tell the truth every time. So Jacob lies to his father, Isaac. And he uses a goat for food. Jacob's sons lie to their dad about his son, and they use the blood of a goat. What goes around, comes around. Now what's interesting is the son's deception is not primarily verbal. It's intentional, though. They present a piece of evidence that they've doctored, and they let dad draw his own conclusions. They take the hated coat they knew dad would recognize and they dipped it in goat's blood and they probably tore it in some places to make it look like there had been a, you know, a struggle with a wild animal. But they did lie when they said, oh, we, we just found this. Well, they just didn't find it. They stripped it off their brother. I mean, right? I think this is pure hatred to ask Jacob if he recognized your son's tunic. Do you recognize your son's tunic? The truth of it is, these brothers not only hate Joseph, they hate their father for playing favorites. And they're going to make him suffer. And they do for 22 years. They maintain this lie. You can lie with your silence as well as with your words. They let dad draw the conclusion that Joseph was dead even though they knew better. It's hard to believe that Jacob never figured out that his favoritism had caused his sons to hate not only Joseph, but him. Apparently, he never gets insight over this. And you look at this and you say, where is God? He's not mentioned once in this chapter. You know, is God on vacation? Did he just take a nap? God's very much alive and well. Every single thing in this chapter is orchestrated or allowed by God. God is never the author of evil. When you see evil in this chapter, God does not approve of that evil. He never approves of evil, but he allows evil. He doesn't approve of the sin in your life and my life, but he allows it. Yes? If he didn't allow it, you and all would all be dead. He would say, I can't tolerate this anymore. But he is merciful, giving us time to repent and giving the world time to repent. As Roger talked about this morning, if you didn't, Go to that service at 8 o'clock. You go to 11 o'clock. It was amazing. So God has a plan, and we're going to see this unfold over the next few weeks. God's plan is going to unfold right on schedule. God does not approve of evil, but he uses even the evil, the hatred, the jealousy, the dysfunctionality of this family to accomplish his purposes. And I think this should give us hope. Because none of us come from perfect families. None of us are perfect parents. None of us are perfect grandparents. None of us were perfect children. That's just part of the turf. We, we come from a sinful lineage. A human race is broken. God is working out his plan right now in your life and in your family's life and in your children's life and in your grandchildren's life and in your nieces and your nephew's life. And you come from a dysfunctional family. You is a dysfunctional family. Because you're sinners. And I am too. I'm the worst. 
The grace of God is never limited by the sin of man, and that should give us phenomenal hope. See, God's doing some stuff right now in your life and my life, most of which we don't see and most of which you don't understand, correct? Now, we look at this and we go, well, it was pretty clear that God had to get Joseph into, into Egypt. I mean, he's going to become the prime minister. Uh, not that they knew. If you'd have told them, oh, yeah, you're, 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 your kid brother's going to be the prime minister of Egypt. I mean, you'd lay on the ground and howl. He's a shepherd. He's not going to be the prime minister. Are you crazy? Oh, by the way, there's going to be a major drought here in two decades that's going to move you all to Egypt. And he's got to be there to rescue your hide and make sure you don't die because the Messiah is going to come from you. I don't think they knew all that, right, at that point. God's doing stuff in your life and my life right now that we do not understand, but he has purpose that's going to be achieved through whatever experience you're going through now, and you may not understand it until you get to heaven. He gives us these stories, this narrative, his faithfulness, so that we will trust him for what we're going through now. Most of you in this room are old enough to have collected scar tissue on this path of life. Most of you, God has demonstrated his faithfulness. And you can go back and say, God was there for me then. He was there for me then. He was there for me then. And therefore, based on my heartbreak that I'm going through right now, he will be for me now. And he has purpose to bless I know the plans that I have for you, plans for welfare, not for calamity to get you a future and hope, Genesis, uh, Jeremiah 29, 11. Okay, let's summarize before Tom comes up and leads us in our prayer and praise. Principle one, God's love accepts and unifies us. Personal favoritism compares and divides us. God loves without partiality, and so should we. Number two, do not covet what God has given to another. And do not be arrogant over what has God given to you. Honor Jesus in everything. Number three, sin is never static. Do not allow sin to fester or it will grow until it consumes your life. Number four, God often accomplishes his plans for our lives in ways we do not understand at the time, so trust him. And lastly, the consequences of lying can last for a lifetime, so make it a habit to tell the truth every time. You have enough to work on for the next 167 hours? Good. I do pray every single week that we will hear what God says and that the Holy Spirit will remind us during the week, don't turn to the right, don't turn to the left, follow me. Next week we'll continue, Lord willing, to pick up the parable of Joseph and learn more lessons. Love you. Now that you know... Manna meets at Valley Baptist Church at 4800 Fruitvale Avenue in Bakersfield, California every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. in the choir room. We would love for you to join us. Here at Manna, we believe in doing life together. So if you're in need of prayer, submit your request to Podcast at gmail.com and our class will be happy to pray for you. Thank you for joining us today. And now that you know, do.